Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. Today we're back again with Orson Scott Card. We're just going to be talking about life, living this, and the pursuit of science fiction. So, welcome back again, Scott. Oh, it's fun to be here. So, you've been a writer for of science. Fi- Did you start as a science fiction writer? Uh, I started as a playwright, and I started doing local regional theater in Utah. A lot of things based on LDS scripture, on the Bible, on LDS church history, but also I wrote many things about American history, plays, and audio plays. I did several hundred scripts for half-hour audio plays that were produced, so I got to hear how badly or well I had done. <laughs> uh, there's no there's no hiding from the recording, and I got so that I, I knew the form, I knew how to do it uh, by the time I was through with that. That was before I ever touched science fiction in any, in any serious way. I had tried writing some science fiction because I loved reading it, and, and I mm-hmm. had this wonderful idea for a place to train people for 3D combat in space uh, called the Battle Room, and presumably the school around it, Battle School. But at that point, I did not know it was going to be children. Uh, it was just how you train GIs. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to write that, but I knew I wasn't ready. But I was writing other things uh, that seemed to me to be adequate, and I would send in maybe one a year mm-hmm. to Analog Magazine. Uh, got a couple of nice rejections, and then got a letter that said, our editor, John W. Campbell, uh, died. Would you like to have your story considered by the next editor, or do you want it back? If I'd been a professional in the field, that would have been a really good courtesy because I would already have a relationship with the other editors. I had no idea. And so I said, yes, please keep it. But I got nice letters back saying, we like the way you write. This doesn't work for us. And finally, Ben Bova, who was Campbell's original eventual uh, replacement, replacement, he said uh, he wrote back and he said, we actually publish only science fiction at, at Analog, and this is fantasy. Now, I knew it wasn't fantasy. I knew it was science fiction. I knew the whole surrounding backstory, but I realized the part he can see feels like fantasy because it has trees. And I looked at the covers of books, and where they were fantasy, they had trees on the cover. And where they weren't, they had sheet metal and rivets. So science fiction is sheet metal and rivets, and fantasy is trees. And that's the practical working definition, as far as I'm I'm concerned. Um, And so I decided it was time I needed, I needed money. My, I had started a theater company that, quote, failed, unquote, for a theater company. It was fabulously successful because I ended the first season only $1,500 in debt. That's amazing when it I is. had no funding except for the sales of season tickets. And so, um, you know, I, I thought it was a failure. And I knew I had to make money. I was an editor at a university press. I mean, they didn't need a whole lunch bag. To fill, it, to fill with dirt to cover my salary. That's what I was being paid, was basically a baggie full of, of dirt. And uh, I had to be able to pay off this debt. And so I thought, well, the only thing I know how to do is write. I got these nice letters saying, we like the way you write, even though we're not buying the story. Uh, and so I um, took that idea that I had harbored for about eight years of uh, uh, the battle room, and suddenly, as I was sitting on the front lawn of the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City waiting for a girlfriend to come out with her boss's children that she had taken to the circus, talk about exploitative bosses. Anyway, 
but I, no ticket for me. Mm-hmm. I was just a passenger. Uh, so I sat out there, wrote the line, remember the enemy's gate is down, and realized this was a child speaking to other children, that these war games, that this training was taking place when kids were still young, before puberty, so that they could train their minds away from a gravity-centered way of thinking into a zero-G thought pattern at a young enough age that they could still learn uh, this. It's like learning a new language. It has to be done at a certain age or it's never going to happen. And that was my big breakthrough, and I ended up writing that, and I ended up selling it to Ben Bova after some serious delays. But it was definitely science fiction. There were rivets everywhere and not a single tree. Uh, And so, you know, it was in space, basically. And so I felt pretty good about that uh, by the time that I I got it done. And and Andrew's Game ended up doing well for me. And then the but novel then when, version. When you got the book come out, then there was a tree in there because when Andrew came back to see his sister. The trees were just token trees. Now okay. was, the <laughs> Ender's Games place as science fiction was secure okay, good. by that time. Okay. Uh, and the trees weren't on the cover. Right. Never on the Never cover. Never on the cover, no. Uh, not enough trees to manage the cover. That was one of the confusions about uh, Le Guin's, the word for world is forest. Um, it was a completely forest-centered culture, in fact, the forest was the culture, uh, and so it felt fantasy-like, even though it was pure science fiction, because that really was the the marker, the divider uh, between them. I'm not sure how this set of reminiscences got triggered. What did you originally ask or say that set me off? We were just talking about, did you start with science fiction? Oh, did you, I? Okay, we, yeah. yeah. And And so, yeah, I started with all those other things, but my training as a playwright, that was my school, because you then hear the words said aloud, you see the audience reaction. You know, when I write fiction, I'm not there in your living room when you're sitting on the couch reading the story to yourself. Mm-hmm. If you chuckle, I'm not there to say, what did you laugh at? What did you laugh at? Uh, which is a horrible thing. It's good I'm not there. I do that to my wife. I say, so there was something funny. Was it something I meant to be funny? She said, I think so. And uh, she would tell me what she had just read. But uh, it's just, to me, it was painful to get no feedback because as a playwright, I always got feedback. Everything I wrote got produced. At least it got read aloud by friends uh, in a read-through. Mm-hmm. So I got to hear what I had written. And with my stories, no such thing. So uh, I brought my playwright's training to writing science fiction. And my early fiction was all... Dialogue and stage directions, basically. Uh, The stage directions I had by osmosis, just by reading, I had mastered third-person limited viewpoint. So that's how my stage directions were set up. And then I learned to just drop into first-person dramatic monologue inside the character's mind, uh, which is a technique that you have to maintain the rules of third-person limited very closely before you can drop into the first-person dramatic. And... uh, And I was doing that from the start. So my first science fiction stories were not my first stories. By far, they were not. I already knew how to write a scene that would flow, that would play and reach a climax and end. And so it was an amazing head start for a science fiction writer. So there were people at the time who commented, comes out of nowhere and thinks he can... No, I didn't come out of nowhere. It's just those people who had that comment had never been where I came out of. Right. And so they had no idea 
uh, just how much training. Because an audience is an audience. Mm -hmm. If you're boring, they will let you know. And they'll let you know by wiggling their butts in their chairs. They can't help it. Because if they're enthralled in the story, they don't notice that their butt's itching. And so they don't twitch it. They don't stop. Uh, they do notice when something's funny, they'll laugh. But if they cough, that's because they noticed that they had a catch in their throat, that they had something that made them need to cough. If they're enthralled in the story, they're not coughing. They don't, unless you have emphysema or you just took a swig of water. And if you could take a swig of water, it meant I already lost you anyway. So, you know, the audience watching for a playwright is vital because the audience will never lie to you. They'll lie to you afterward. Oh, it was great. I loved it. They will not lie to you while they're watching. Their bodies will reveal their level of attention. And so I brought the discipline of playwriting uh, to writing fiction. But I started with science fiction because I had read enough of it that I felt like I wouldn't embarrass myself. And there was a paying market for short fiction. It didn't mm -hmm. pay a lot, but it's not like I needed a lot. Yeah. You know, at the time I was earning maybe $8,000 a year and a $600 check from, from uh, analog for Ender's Game was going to make my life better. That was a huge amount of money to me. And so when Ben Bova bought Ender's Game in those days, he didn't send an acceptance letter. He just sent a check. And the check had a stamp on it that said, uh, cashing this check constitutes agreement with the, our policy. Now, the policy was a wrong policy. And it was later changed, you know, where they own all rights, et cetera, et cetera. And, and uh, those were all reassigned to me. You know, that's fine. But I had no idea of, you know, I had no agent. I'd never talked to an agent. And so, you know, I was fortunate that I began my science fiction career with one of the best human beings ever in the business, and that's Ben Bova. Generous to other people, honest, I would say to a fault, but I don't think you can be honest to a fault when it comes to business dealings. And, uh, and so uh, the odd thing is he solicited a book from me, my first published book in science fiction, but it was in the universe of the story that he had rejected because it was fantasy. But it was published as science fiction because it was one of the ancillary stories that had lots of rivets in it. <laughs> and so when eventually, it's in the Worthing Saga now, that first story with all the rivets in it called Tinker, with all the trees in it called Tinker, it's in there now. But in a context where you go, yeah, this is sci-fi, definitely. But you had to have the other stories in order to see it. So I don't criticize Ben for rejecting it. It felt like fantasy and the analog readers would not have liked it mm -hmm. uh, for that reason. Right. But... I'm still proud of it. I think I did okay with my earliest science fiction stories. But I wrote for science fiction because I thought that I wouldn't embarrass myself too badly. And I knew, I also knew that it was not an editor-driven genre. Right. If you sold to Ladies Home Journal at the time, by the time they were through demanding rewrites, it had no resemblance to what you originally wrote. And so you were rarely really the author of your own story. Somebody else had made you revise it until it was a ladies' home journal story. And that was true of all the women's magazines at the time. Red Book may be a little better than the others. Uh, I was a little more known for its fiction. But Harlequin editors are still presumably the same way. And many YA uh, editors now are that way. They know what a YA novel should mm -hmm. be, and they're going to make your novel into that. Uh, whether you like it or that's not. The formula and that's the yeah, story Stephanie that's Meyer ran into that with Twilight, mm -hmm. an editor who actually thought that she had the right to change names of characters. Editors don't have that right, but 
some of them think they do and act accordingly. And, uh, and so it was, you know, I was lucky to have been, and he solicited a novel from me so that I finished my first novel and my first story collection before I got married. In fact, I actually, on the day that I was getting married, I mailed off the finished manuscript, a Xerox of it, to uh, Ben uh, so that it would be done before I was married. And that was important to me for some reason. My wife goes, oh, so you didn't want me to be part of that one? I thought, you have 100% of everything I have. You know, so no, it wasn't for that. It was that it was my novel. It was my baby. I was never going to have any of the actual living babies. That was her job. So my job was to make these other babies and and try to make them live. And so, you know, it's just, you know, the, the roots of this, uh, I never set out to be a science fiction writer because I never set out to be a writer. I, I entered college as an archaeology major until I found out how much actual hard work real archaeologists do. And when in, you, when the, then when did you go from archaeology then to... Um, theater. Theater. I went to theater. Did you also, did you also have a master's in, in English? No, no. I have a master's in English, but that was way later. Okay. See, my first semester I realized, I don't want to be an archaeologist. I want to read books written by archaeologists about their work. Uh, and I realized I was spending all my time trying out for and acting in plays. And so I switched my major to theater with full knowledge that there was no possible career path open to me. Uh, still, I was going to be an actor, maybe a director. I'm not that good an actor. I'm not bad either. I don't, you know, you don't hoot me off, boo me off the stage. Right. But I, I couldn't carry a show that required a charismatic actor in the lead. But I can do well enough in character parts. But um, I found that I love directing and I'm good at it. And I still do it. It's an expensive proposition because we have no backing, so I pay for the sets and whatever, uh, or find some cooperative person. I had a person who worked at a scenery sh at a, a costume shop rather, who provided costumes out of her own pocket. She had to pay because she didn't own the company, but she uh, um, basically paid for the costumes for many productions for us. It, it was a godsend because that made it possible. Uh, and this then was I, Salt Lake City. This was well in Utah. Utah. Uh, and, well, no, actually that, that particular relationship was in Greensboro, North Carolina. Mm, okay. But I was directing plays in Utah before I, uh, before I moved. Um, but I went into theater and only accidentally moved into um, playwriting. And oddly enough, this is the first time I've ever made this connection. It was over science fiction. I had read Flowers for Algernon. And loved it. It was mm -hmm. so moving. And I read it right. in high school. I was assigned it in high school by a good teacher. And um, then I had read the novel, Flowers for Algernon, when that came out. And I felt that the novel was not as successful as the short story because the, long, the greater length gave more room for missteps. But I knew the story. And then it was chosen as a play being produced on the main stage at my university. And the director um, had me as his assistant director. And before the first day of rehearsal, I said, Dr. Whitman, um, the second act doesn't work. It not only doesn't work, it violates the whole feel of the story, the meaning of the story. It's kind of crappy. And, I, and he said, well, what can I do about that? I said, well, let me write you a draft 
that's based on the original book and story that will have the feeling of the original book and story. And for some reason, having never written a, any play longer than a 10-minute parody, I thought I could do this. Arrogance was endemic. Uh, and, and I did. I wrote a second act, and my second act worked. It was way better than the, the commercial version of the script. Now, doing it violated the contract six ways from Tuesday. I had no rights to do this. The contract they signed forbade any kind of revision. And here I was tossing out their whole second act and going back to the original. But they never found out. And I had the experience of hearing people roar at lines I wrote and hearing people, seeing people weep at scenes I constructed based on, on Daniel Keyes' material. Then I did a similar thing with Tell Me That You Love Me, Junie Moon. And I wrote a reader's theater version of it that really worked, but that one wasn't science fiction. My start as a playwright was with a science fiction story, Flowers which I just, I had not really connected till now. So I was doing science fiction right from the start of both careers, but all my, my other stuff in, in playwriting was based on existing stories, uh, history usually, or mm -hmm. scripture or whatever. Um, but that Tell Me That You Love Me, Judy Moon, that's what made me just cross the line and say, writing is what I'm supposed to do. Because I took that book, which was not designed to be theatrical, and turned it into a highly theatrical production. Um, and there was true reader's theater. I mean, only mm -hmm. a few people were moving around the stage. Most people sat at music stands. And at the end of it, we had two performances only. Uh, the first performance was full. You know, there was an audience for mm -hmm. it. And at the end, the first few rows, just as a body, rushed the stage. There was a leaping to the feet, standing ovation, and those first rows rushed the stage to embrace the actors. They, they loved them so much. I was ecstatic. I had, had never expected that kind of emotional response. The second night, the fire marshal should have shut us down. All the aisles were full of people sitting on stairs, it was packed. There were people sitting on the floor, on the apron of the stage. We barely had room to put on the show because word of mouth had spread. You've got to see this. And I thought, if it's always like this, I found my, my but it isn't always like that. Right. I was working with a highly emotional, deeply moving story. Uh, and, and a lot of the best lines came from, from Marjorie Kellogg, not from me. Right. So it was her triumph as much as mine but I knew that I had structured it into a drama that worked. And so that was my training as a writer. And I still recommend to, uh, to writers, look, you're writing a novel, but you wrote this scene with all this dialogue in it. Just get a couple of friends to read the scene aloud so that you can hear what you did. Because you don't know until you hear it out loud by someone who didn't write it. You can read it out loud and you'll make perfect sense of it to other people. But if they read it out loud, then you'll find out whether you wrote clearly. That and is. it's great, you know, it's great training. And you always have friends who are willing to do that because so many people have a theater bug that they're not willing to admit, but they will love reading your manuscript out loud. Unless, of course, it sucks like pond scum, but, you know, that's, that's uh, another matter. That's entirely. another matter. How did you end up at uh, BYU as a um, teaching creative writing? Oh, I, I'm not at BYU. What you did before? I had one... I was going to teach a science fiction writing class at BYU. Because you taught Dave Wolverton. 
Not at BYU. I thought he said it was at BYU. He was, you originally had a creative writing class there. No. What it was was I was scheduled. But I got accepted at Notre Dame as a uh, graduate assistant and, and graduate student. And I left. And so went you never to taught South there at BYU? Creative. Well, I taught, not creative writing, I taught, um, maybe it was creative writing. Anyway, I did teach one class in summer school. But then the fall thing was We're specifically... We're on the street. No, the, the fall... <laughs> the taught, and then Dave took over, and then, and then Dave Brandon didn't, took over. Dave didn't take over. No, no. Okay. Here's, here's what actually okay. happened. All right. A lot of kids had signed up for the science fiction writing class. Right. At the time... I had published a couple of things. I think, yeah, at that time, uh, Ender's Game, the short story had come out. I think I even had a couple of books. The first two, the Capital of Worthing Saga books. Um, But I was going to South Bend to go to graduate school. The idea was to get a doctorate. I was in that program. I had already gotten a master's degree at the University of Utah in English. So I left. But they had all these students who had registered for a class and were outraged that they didn't have a teacher. So Professor Marion Smith, not a science fiction writer, didn't even consider himself a writer, agreed to cover the class. And everyone wrote stories and they critiqued them, ran a good workshop, and it founded was the founding of a writing program, a writing workshop that lasted for decades. Because even after you took the class, you stayed in the group. And uh, Marion ended up, they called him Doc Smith because, hey, E.E. E. Doc Smith, and he was a Ph.D., so, uh, or maybe he wasn't. I, don't, I have no idea. But what matters is they called him Doc Smith, and he became the father superior, I guess, in a way. You know, think of, of Sound of Music and the loving mother superior. Yes. That was him, uh, basically saying, climb every mountain, write every story you can think of, you poor kids who, you know, mm-hmm. want to do sci-fi. And it became the heart of the science fiction community. It still lives on in the annual convention, Life Universe, the Life the Universe, Life the Universe, and everything, and everything, right? Um, and when BYU lost its way and couldn't figure out why they were sponsoring the science fiction thing, because the English department was ashamed of it because they're idiots, um, they moved it off campus, and it continues now just as a private thing that's done at a downtown hotel in, in Provo, and it's still wonderful. It's yeah. still one of the best conventions I've ever been to because they actually talk about books. It's not like a thinly disguised convention about superhero comics in the movies uh, with an occasional panel about writing, uh, about literature, about the mm-hmm. written stuff. It's actually almost entirely about the written stuff with an occasional mention of the uh, movie and TV things. Anyway, it's a great convention. And that grew out of my not teaching a class at BYU. So the origin was me not teaching and Marion Smith taking over and making it work. Now, years later, Dave started teaching there. Okay. But when that stuff happened, he hadn't, he hadn't, you know, the writers of the future contest didn't exist. Right. And so he, you know, he wouldn't have been asked to teach it because he wasn't qualified yet. Uh, Winning the contest and then um, years of teaching writing made it so he was an obvious, outstanding uh, writing teacher, Uh, practiced, skilled. um, He was a great choice. I teach writing at Southern Virginia University, which is also 
not an official Mormon church school, but it's run by Mormons with the assumption that most students are going to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so that means that I can refer to a shared culture that I can't use when I'm dealing with people who are not members of the church. So when I teach writing there, you don't have to be a Mormon to take my class, and it will have just as much value, but uh, there'll be cultural references that make sense to, to people who are in and church. not out. But, you know, if you're a student at SVU, you hear enough of it anyway that you're familiar with it all. Uh, so I go, I teach usually one semester out of four. We're starting a program with this winter semester. Well, it's officially spring, but it starts in January and it ends by the time spring comes. So I think of it as their winter semester. Um, we're starting a program, uh, professional writing uh, concentration within the English major. And I'm hoping that it, it ends up really working. It's, I teach the writing classes I've already taught, uh, but we have a practicum every semester, whether I'm there or not, in which all of the writers in the program read a book, one nonfiction and one fiction each semester. Mm -hmm. It's only a one credit hour course. But then we come together and talk about things we learn from the book, about writing and about the world, because fiction has to be about something. Right. And so this is the place where I just help everybody stay connected. And then they can also bring stuff of their own to talk about problems they're facing in fiction. Not for us all to read, because that's too much copying and too much time spent reading aloud. But uh, the practicum is the, is the fulcrum of everything. But in addition, I'm dividing my writing classes up into lecture units and workshop units. So you take the lecture unit once, then later you can keep taking workshop units. And uh, the plan is that the sign that you've actually succeeded is you publish something before you graduate. And it's not science fiction. I'm not doing that. It's, it's, it can be. It can be fantasy or science fiction if you want. Many of the students are. But it can be any kind of fiction. It's and fiction. I've had, in effect, the fictional Hallmark movie stories. And they've been wonderful. I've had some really sweet, mild-mannered students who write savagely funny uh, satirical fiction, and I read it and I go, yeah, this is what Jane Austen was doing. Uh, and so it's just fun to see what's on their minds and what's in their hearts, and then help them develop it with the idea of, is there a market for this? How would a publisher sell this? Mm -hmm. how, would, how would they be able to let people know that they want to read this? And you don't change the fiction for that, you just shape the presentation. And, uh, and so they, you know, the, my students have responded, have done well, and I'm hoping that with real concentration, we'll be able to have people come out with a college degree, with a certificate from that program, but most important, with a sale. With a published work. Which, in which other words, I'm trying to do for writers else, of... But nobody else in college does. Well, I'm trying to do what Writers of the Future does, because that's what Writers of the Future does. You not only are told, yes, you did well enough, your story is published. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. That changes everything. You not only get money, you not only get an award, a physical award, you not only get a ceremony, by the way, the best award ceremony in the entire world of writing, period. Uh, and not only that, you get published in an anthology that is read by the editors. People get publishing deals from their short story. Editors approach them and say, I loved your story in Writers of the Future. If you're submitting a novel, 
to a publisher and your original letter, your query letter says, I just won a quarterly contest with writers of the future. Would you like to see my novel manuscript? The answer will always be yes, because they know that passing the hurdle of the writers of the future contest means you know what you're doing. You are a writer. You can do this thing. And they want to see what you do with a novel. Now, it might fail. Writing a novel is different from writing a short story. And not every, you know, my first three stories sold, but the second and third one required a lot of work. And then my fourth and fifth one did not sell at all. I was in a panic. I thought my career was three stories long, and the only good one was Ender's Game. Now, that might be enough, but it wasn't enough for me. I needed money, and I, you know, I didn't want to be trapped behind a desk for the right. rest of my life. So, of course, a writing career means you're trapped behind a desk for the rest of your life. So, <laughs> you know, that, that plan. Anyway, yes. But, but uh, so, you know, starting out, um, so different for me. So other people say, well, what was your struggle like? I had no struggle as a science fiction writer. I had a little worry there with stories four and five. But once I started writing books, um, I have never written something that was not published. Everything, including those two stories that got rejected, it's all been published. Um, Which is when I die, there's not going to be a trunk for anyone to go and find manuscripts in. It's no already out there. Yeah. yeah, that's great. When I announced that uh, I was going to be doing a podcast interview with you, I asked if anybody had any questions, and so I've uh, printed off this half a ream of, of paper here with uh, the responses. It's two sheets of paper, people. He's such a liar. <laughs> But this is, you know, this is essentially radio, so we're not even wearing pants. I mean, you don't have to. When you can't see us, it's, it's okay. We can do what we want, dress that's, as we that's want. That's a fact. That's a fact. So uh, I'm just going to uh, read them to you in the sequence that they came in after I made that uh, before you, before you Before you read those, let me tell you, uh, I had a good friend who was a college professor at BYU, a writing teacher. I never actually took a writing class from him, but uh, uh, Doug Thayer. Uh, mm -hmm. And he was a wonderful writer, but a literary writer, so no huge following. Uh, but he knew what good literature was. So on campus, when I was working as an editor at the BYU Press, and, you know, we happened to meet in the Fine Arts Center or, you know, in passing, as soon as he saw me, 30 yards away, he'd shout out, Hey, Card, you still writing that spaceship stuff? Because he had such disdain for science fiction. And I'd laugh because he meant it well. Uh -huh. You know, he wanted me to be writing his kind of stuff, but I thought, my spaceship stuff is going to be read long after the literary stuff, no, as, right. long as, it's, uh, after it's, long after it's dead. And not because I'm a better writer, but because I'm writing to communicate with an audience right. uh, of volunteers. Anyway, when you say people had questions, I think, I wonder if any of them was, hey, Card, you're still writing that spaceship stuff? <laughs> <laughs> All right, and I'm going to give their names because they, they made a specific point. And I said, okay, I will definitely make sure I, I pose your question. So this is from Brindy Lee Kimball, and she simply wrote, I don't know what to ask, but you could tell him he is amazing and all-my-time favorite author, and he literally changed my life. So on behalf of Brindy. Well, that's, that's very lovely of her. The changing someone's life, I think, no, you changed your life. But I'm glad that, that you involved my stories in something that was transitional for you. That's great. Ivan Alaksa, um, he's from uh, Slovakia. 
If he would judge the stories in our Slovak Fantasy Award next year, once we had his short story with an interview in our magazine, Fantasia, but that was a long, long time ago. I asked him, have you asked him? He says, oh, no, I couldn't ask that. He was totally afraid, you know, um, to oh, ask. Oh, I, I would have thought that after I uh, did that for them, they would know they could ask. You know, if I can't, then I'll say so. Good. But as long as they give me enough time between receiving the stories, as long as they're not in Slovak, as long as they've been translated into English, I'm, I think I can see past translation problems. Um, I, my answer to them would be, sure, let's Good. talk about it. At least let's talk about it. Good. And my email address is well known, but the fact is if you go to my website, hatrack.com, if you post anywhere on the website, it will be seen by someone in my house, and it will the word will get to me. So if this question is posted there, uh, it'll get answered. Good, good. I'll let Ivan know that. Jeff Berkowitz, is, uh, you may or may not know him. He's a very good friend. He's been following Writers of the Future since the beginning. He's, in, he's a contributing editor for Sci-Fi Magazine and has written many, many great articles about Writers of the Future over the years. Cool. Um, he asks, I'd love to hear his thoughts on the Extinct TV series, which ran on BYU TV for a single season. I know he has a book coming out or recently released that is based on that series. Would love to know what he would have done differently and what the future holds for the franchise, not to mention why we have to wait until 2035 for the book to come out. He's making that date up, of course. Because, <laughs> yes. But it's been a wait because I have had a bad couple of years, um, plagued by insomnia and depression and all kinds of other dumb stuff that has made it almost impossible for me to get anything written. But I'm coming out of it. I'm many, many chapters into ex the first volume of Extinct called Burning Water. And um, the real problem I'm facing right now is where do I make the break between book one and book two? Whenever I've written in a series, the breaks between the books have been absolutely clear. The first book finishes. It ends. Even though it leaves a promise for more, I don't like to have an open-ended cliffhanger ending. Right. So I'm, work I'm wrestling with that. But I'll have this book finished well before Thanksgiving, I think. Uh, I'm, it's really close. Oh, good. Um, the fact that I'm here talking to you means that I'm not writing. But I would have been writing if I had, had been at home. But, um, but the fact that you're here is very yeah. good for the future And my thoughts fiction. about the series where I wouldn't have changed a thing. I knew what budget they were working with. Aaron Johnston, who has collaborated with me on many books in the Ender universe, he is an outstanding screenwriter. And he knew the budget limitations. We developed the overall storyline together, the milieu, you know, the characters. We knew who they were. We knew what, what the history was that they were moving through. And so in that sense, he and I co-wrote until the moment of actually typing the screenplays. And that was his. And it's the same thing I've learned having him write the, with me on the uh, um, Formic Wars, the six Formic Wars books. Um, he does a better imitation of me than I do. He writes more like I do than I do. And I always had the power, the right to step in and make any changes I wanted to. I just learned very quickly that I didn't want to change anything. He'd written it right. Why would I fiddle? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like uh, screen executives, movie executives who have to pee on a manuscript just to prove that they were there. There's nothing wrong with it. Why are you messing with it? Um, and I don't believe in doing that. So he's had a free hand. The later books in the Formic Wars series, I would read for the first time when I listened to the audiobook. So there was one thing, I've teased Aaron about this, that, that he put in 
that he had no way of knowing that this was something that just, I just hate. And it's, go, go, go. The first time I read that was in Jim Cameron's script of The Abyss, but it was the first time I read it. So it seemed new, and I thought, okay, it's Dick and Jane sounding, run, spot, run, uh, but fine, maybe in duress somebody might say that. Now it is such a cliche in movies that I just want to scream every time I hear it. It's what a writer does instead of writing. It's in, in Deadpool 2, when at the end, they, he wants to take off a neck thing, and but he doesn't know the code, and... Um, so the lucky girl uh, says seven. He goes, one digit? No way. And then somebody presses seven and it pops open. And he goes, now that's lazy writing. Now, since he's a credited screenwriter on this, my guess is he wrote that. Uh, and it was, it was hilarious. It was absolutely wonderful. But lazy writing now to put go, go, go is what you do instead of writing. It's what you do when you just gave up on that scene and you go, Exciting stuff's happening. Somebody yells, go, go, go. Uh, and so I tease Aaron about yeah. resorting to that. But again, you know, it didn't feel that cliche to him. He wasn't sick of it yet. And so he used it. And it's a thing. Now real people say that. They actually yeah. do. They didn't used to. They never did. Because it was a Dick and Jane reader. Right. You know. And so uh, it's just funny to watch the language change and watch a new phrase come into being. That's the only time I would have changed the thing he wrote. So when we came to Extinct, I realized we need to change hats here. He's going to be writing the original basic material. Uh, and, you know, he would call me whenever he ran into a world question or whatever. What if we, how about this? How do we solve this? And I would come up with answers because I'm good at that. And then that's what I do. But, um, but then... Um, he did the actual writing. Plus, he was the showrunner. In television, you know, in, in film, the writer, they always treat him after the script is written as if he were dead mm. because they don't want to consult with him on anything. He has no place in the room because the jealous director knows that the writer is the author of, this, of the movie. And he has to try to become the author of the movie by messing up the script and being the only important person. To have the, the writer on set would mean he might actually talk to an actor, uh, which might mean the actor might actually understand what he was what supposed, he was to, be supposed to be doing. So, yeah. you know, that, that would be a terrible thing. Yeah. But in television, the showrunner is a writer. The executive producer is the head writer. And that's who has the authority unless, as Scott Brazil once pointed out to me, he said, unless the name of the actor or the role the actor plays is in the title. Then that actor, in the second year on, has all the power, and you will be fired. Period. You just have to recognize you will be fired because you will think you're writing the series, and they will think they're writing the series. And they are not competent, but sometimes it endures anyway. Right. Uh, but in this case, Aaron became the showrunner. And there was a, a good director involved, but he couldn't direct every episode, so there were other directors going to be brought in. And so it worked out really well, except for a management change halfway through filming the first season. And the new management had not invented here syndrome. It wasn't their baby. They so. were determined to kill it. And so we were set up. We would have done three seasons. We would have done enough for syndication. Uh, but uh, the new management of BYU TV, 
killed it. And here's the excuse they used. We've decided to go in a direction of more family-friendly television. Even though their own website was full of comments from audience members saying, finally, a show, an intelligent show that we can sit down and watch with the whole family and everybody loves it. The kids, the teenagers, the parents all love it. That's what we were getting. Hundreds of comments like that. They already had what they pretended they were looking for, but it wasn't theirs. It wasn't theirs. And so that made me sad because we were fulfilling our, our mandate and we were doing it on about a third of the budget of what an earlier series BYU TV paid for uh, did. I mean, they cut way back and we did a good job with, mm-hmm. with what we were given. Aaron was brilliant. But when it came time to try to promote the series, we thought it was going to be ongoing. And so coming out with a novel of the first season, a couple of novels of the first season was going to be great promotion. Uh, I said, okay, Aaron, you're writing the scripts. You're doing the hard stuff. I'll write the novelizations. Now, I had written the novelization of The Abyss, and it was pretty straightforward because I already knew where the book would end. It would end at the same point as the movie ended. But uh, I was able to invent the backstory for that novel. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to invent any backstory for Extinct because Aaron had the backstory in the series. You know, ever since Lost, backstory flashbacks have been a vital part of films of uh, television storytelling. Mm-hmm. So he wrote the, wrote the scripts. Every word of the scripts is his. But my novelization, I'm determined to make it good novels and not just faithful translations of the script. So I am faithful. I'm not contradicting any scenes in this in the uh, film because the film was given the budget. The film was amazing. Mm-hmm. Given the uh, amount of time to tell the story, Aaron did a magnificent job. That, this was such a difficult story to tell, and he did it great. So I'm really proud to be coming out with it. And when I figure out where volume one should end, it'll be halfway through the season. I'll have that, then the second volume will get us to the end of the season, and the third volume will take us into the storyline that is not going to be filmed. There's no way to film it now. We'd have to start over again and reshoot from the beginning because we had a great cast, but they couldn't sit around waiting forever. And it took BYU TV so long to even, I mean, I don't think they ever watched it, the new administration. I don't think they saw a moment of it. But to give us an answer on whether they were going to proceed, um, the contracts were already up. And those actors held on and didn't schedule themselves to give us a chance for another six months or so before we finally got an answer that they were not renewing. And at that point, they had to go. I mean, these are good yeah. actors who need to act and earn a living. That's right. But one thing I'm pretty sure of, they will never have to be ashamed of being part of that one season of Extinct because I'm still so proud of that story. It's the only thing of mine that has ever been filmed properly and faithfully mm-hmm. because... Aaron is not just an outstanding writer. He is a great showrunner. He understands the medium. He understands screenwriting. He made it fly. Uh, on the budget, on the, with the sets we had to work with, it's just so amazing. It looks so much better than the budget would lead you to believe it was going wow. to. Wow. That's awesome. I know Jeff's going to love that answer. 
The next uh, question we had is from Tony Todaro. He's the uh, president of the Greater Los Angeles Writer Society. I think it's the biggest writer society in the United States. Um, and he just said, ask him to be a guest of honor for the California uh, Creative Writing Conference, March 20th, 22nd in Los Angeles. And uh, I said, great, you got a budget? Is what I asked in response that right away. You know, I said, how would you like, like to be transported and uh, hotel and accommodations? And he said, I'm looking for a, um, um, a sponsor. I said, well, if you got a sponsor, we can definitely, uh, I'll make the ask to you just on this thing here and then I guess again off. Yeah. Well, the thing is in principle, uh, if they're willing to take the heat that comes with having me as a guest, mm -hmm. um, I am never political period ever when I go to a, especially a writer's group, but even to a fan group. If I'm attending as the writer of Ender's Game and other books, there's no politics in that. Unlike right. a lot of people in Hollywood, I don't think of it as a bully platform for my particular opinions. Uh, I'm not there to engage people politically. I'm there to, to help them be better writers right. and to help them communicate with their audience or if they're readers of my work, to deal with their questions, to answer what they, what, and to, to respond to what they have to say. So they're not gonna have a problem with me, but they may have a problem with other people who don't know how to take an old political debate and just move on. You yeah. know, the thing's no longer an issue, why would we discuss it? Right. But because at the time they had to lie about me to defame me, they now have to pretend that the lies were true. They were lies and not true. But I still have to be punished as if they were true. So there'll always be somebody who wants to uh, threaten a boycott or whatever. And I'm not interested in that. Yeah. And, and so um, if they can promise that I'll have an, a respectful audience that will listen to what I have to say, I will not outrage them with the things I say, unless, of course, they are deeply committed to loving James Joyce and Ulysses. I will say things that infuriate them then. <laughs> okay, good. I don't think you're going to have that as a problem. But uh, anyway, for that yeah. or anybody else who'd like to invite me, again, all it takes is putting some kind of posting on my website, hatrack.com, mm -hmm. and uh, somebody will respond. Good, good. Another uh, person, uh, Bobby Berger Brunoiler, ask him, what effect that you created in a reader's life by the reading one of your stories makes you glad that you wrote this story? I have heard from many teachers um, who, see, when Ender's Game came out, I assumed that kids, really bright, gifted kids, would identify with Ender as a bright, gifted kid. What shocked me was the number of letters I got from teachers of people with reading problems, of dyslexic kids, of kids in the dumb class who were, had been labeled as bad students and et cetera, who would say, um, I started reading the book aloud and about five chapters then I stopped and said, you have to finish it yourself. And they all did. Wow. And I thought, well, that is life-changing. If, if a book of mine can help somebody who has given up on reading, want to finish a story, then I must have done something here. But I get letters from kids who were labeled dumb, whatever, who had real problems with school, hated school, and they will write to me and say, I am Ender. And I thought, okay, you don't fit the, you know, you aren't passing the tests. You aren't, 
you know, the one that everybody's saying, he's the chosen one. He's the one who can, can win the war for us. So what do they mean? And what they mean is they felt isolated. And so they simply used Ender Wigan as the inspiration to take charge of their own education. Ender Wigan decides that he is training to fight the war, not training to be the top student. He doesn't care about top student. He's not competing. All he cares about is training himself and others to win the war that will save the human race. And so using his own purpose, he sails through, even though he gets a lot of opposition, a lot of crap mm -hmm. from some other students, for, even from teachers, the attempt to isolate him fails because instead of trying to use other students to advance his own career, he sacrifices his time freely to help them prepare better. And so that was when I finally, you know, came to understand what works about Ender's game. It's not Ender versus the teachers. It's not Ender versus the formics. It's not any of the strategies in the battle room. What works is Ender Wigan loves the other students and does what it takes to help them get better if they want to. And along the way, he also gets better. Mm -hmm. But he's not exploiting them. He's helping them. He's sacrificing for them. Uh, and that's why people love Ender Wigan. And it took a long time for me to realize that. I wrote it instinctively. Yeah. I wrote it on, with an unconscious emphasis on that. But then I realized this is absolutely the truth about Ender Wigan. This is why people love him. Not because he's smart, no. but because he's kind. Because he really cares about his men. I should have gotten this when Captain John Schmidt in the Marine Corps at the Marine University in Quantico was requiring his uh, advanced officers to read Ender's Game. I said, how are you using it? You're not preparing for a war in space. And he says, oh, no, no. It's not about that. It's about command. It's about how you command. And how do you command? You know your men. You know them so well that you know what each one is capable of. And when you have a difficult, dangerous mission that requires a particular skill, you send the guy most likely to succeed and live to come back so that your men know you're not going to waste them. You're not going to just throw their lives away on a problem. You're going to look and see who might solve that problem. And you're going to send the best trained, best skilled person to do that job and use other people on the things they're better skilled at. And never waste them. Mm -hmm. Never waste them. When you have your soldiers trust, when your Marines know that that's how you're using them in combat, they will die for you. Right. And literally, they will die for you. They will die trying. And that's Ender Wigan. Mm -hmm. And so I realized, okay, he's teaching committed, loving command to Marines. You're supposed to yell at people in the Marines, but no. You're supposed to use them wisely and sparingly. Right. So that as many of them as possible come home with complete bodies so they can go ahead and live a life. And, you know... How have I changed people's lives? How has any of my story? They, if they need what Ender's Game teaches, they'll find it mm -hmm. and use it and learn from it what they, what they want to. I don't change anybody's lives. My stories don't change their life. My stories provide them with a handle where they can pull the solution to their problems out themselves. And so I'm proud of them when they do that because... You can be told a solution to your problem and pay no attention. That's right. But they see Ender and they go, okay, 
I can do this. If Ender can do it, I can do it. And they're right. Over and over again, they've proven that they're right. Good. Next you have here is from Brittany Perry Rainsden. Ask what makes an award-winning story and how to create a story that sticks with you. Gah! Excited to hear his interview. So she, we've, you've already discussed quite a bit of this already, what you've Well, except at. for she's asking the unanswerable question. Uh, what wins an award? Well, when it's Writers of the Future, it has to get past the first readers, and then it has to get past the judges. And if you want the grand prize, it has to get past the last panel of judges that I'm on. And I'm handed four stories, the quarterly winners, and I vote for what I like. Does the thing I like best always win? No. But every story that I'm shown is worthy of being considered for the, the final. So I'm not even worried about it. I'm not going to say it doesn't matter who wins. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't matter in terms of quality. What is it? Because they're all high quality. Right. They've already been screened. So how do you write an award-winning story? You don't. You write the best damn story you can come up with and let the awards take care of themselves. You have no idea. Yeah, there's nothing answer. you can do. That's a great answer, and that's totally true. This is, I hope, this is a, a Romanian friend, a Liviu Surugio. Sorry, Liviu, if I totally botched it, which I know I did. A question from a Romanian fan. What happened to Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine show? Will a magazine come back? Thank you. Okay, what happened to it was, what's happened to all the short story magazines? You know, 10 years ago, I think Analog was at about 120,000 subscribers. And I don't know what the numbers are, but it's down. It's, I think it's under 20,000 now. People stopped reading the short stories. Television has replaced the role of the short story in the American public. Uh, Writers of the Future is amazing for still being alive and having so many people buy it and read it. Mm -hmm. They're not just buying it out of duty. They're buying it and they read it. It's one of the, the rare short story publications in the world right now, uh, at least in the English-speaking world, that has a, a really strong readership. Uh, it's one of the reasons you got to enter this contest if you're starting out. This is the first place you submit because no other venue will provide you with this number of readers. Right. Uh, so the short story market is virtually gone, just like the uh, free weekly, for which I used to write my weekly review column on Glorson Reviews Everything. It had to stop publishing because nobody's buying ads in, in a print newsletter mm -hmm. enough to support uh, the printing. And nobody was buying. I mean, we had a good following. As long as we had no paid editors, no paid staff, we could pay. The magazine could pay for itself. But if you're going to have a quality publication, somebody's got to read and select the uh, uh, stories. Mm -hmm. And we just could not make it pay. We tried all the things we could think of to try to up the um, readership. But the stories were excellent. I'm proud of the publication. It was a good idea. It should have existed. But it, it just was not heading toward being self-sustaining. And I'm not infinitely wealthy. I had some money that I could spare to pay for the editor uh, and the and the reading staff and so on. But after a point, you just say, it's time to fold our doors like so many other publications mm -hmm. have. And so we close the door, and it's not coming back. Okay. Because unless there's some massive change in the culture that suddenly makes short stories have a market again, you know, we're, it's retired. However, it's still online. All the issues that were published 
We're planning to make sure that they're all available for free. All the art can be seen. You know, we illustrated our stories right to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the art will be there. The stories will be there. And as far as we're concerned, we hope that people will keep discovering it and reading these, these stories. These great stories. All right, so here's another one which is pretty much probably going to be answered just by the fact that uh, you can tell people just to do the online writing course. That's going to be coming out soon. But Jim Miner writes, How to Write Interesting Characters. Well, I have written a book called Character and Viewpoint. Uh, I suggest you check it out from the library. It'll be free there. And, uh, and read what I had to say because it's not like I didn't tell everything that I knew. And if there's stuff that isn't there, it's because I don't know it. Uh, so Good. that will, that will be, again? it's called Character and Viewpoint. Okay. And I talk about developing characters at every level, the minor throwaway characters, the eccentrics that you want to have be memorable, but they're not the ones your story is going to be about. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. about every level of characterization. And we talk a lot about that in the online Writers of the Future workshop. And I teach it in my writing class at Southern Virginia University. So, you know, there are places to find out what I know about it and places to find out what other people know. But here's the real real secret of writing characters. Come up with good dialogue between two characters and find out who they are by what they say and what they do. And as you start doing that, you'll come to like one of them or maybe both of them Mm -hmm. a lot. And the more you like them, the better you'll write them. And so if you're worried about it as a writer yourself, write characters you like. Your readers will like them too. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right, this is from uh, Sulan Dunn. Regarding whoever is in the most pain is a protagonist. How do you keep him in pain throughout the whole novel and still have a character arc? Okay, she's actually quoting me. Okay. Because for years I've been saying, so who is your protagonist? Look at the world situation you have. You know, what, is the, what are the rules of fantasy in your fantasy world? Uh, what is the main problem facing people in your science fiction world? Or, you know, whatever. Whatever's wrong with the world. Whatever's mm-hmm. wrong with the character's life. But then you look at that and then you pick your character by who is in the most pain without getting killed. Now, I'm not talking about physical pain. I'm talking, right. But what she's misunderstanding here is that's how you pick the character, but that's not what you keep going with. You know, the character will be in pain at the beginning and he'll be trying to solve a problem. Uh, maybe he has to escape from prison. But, you know, in Shawshank Redemption, it takes him the whole movie to get out. And they withhold from us the information of what he's actually doing. Uh, and so that, you know, it's it's actually there, but it's not, right. not obvious. Uh, but the movie ends when he gets out and when it's revealed that he got out. And then we have the one character follow him and find him. And that's wonderful. We love that. But he's not in equal pain all the way through. I mean, that is a masterful piece of screenwriting. Uh, He's in the terrible pain of being wrongfully convicted of his wife's murder. And the standard thing to do is to have him solve it. But no, he gets convicted and goes to jail. He does not solve the murder. He doesn't find out who did it. He just knows that he's in jail. And then the problem is surviving in jail as a wimpy accountant kind of guy. Uh, and he works it out with bluff and bluster, which I believe in the real world would not have worked, but it's a novelistic thing to come up with. It's, it's not Stephen King's strongest moment as a writer, but uh, Tim Robbins and the director and the screenwriter brought it off, uh, and, it, and it worked. 
But most of his time, he's getting along fine in prison. He's surviving. He's not in danger. Uh, he still has the pain of having been wrongfully convicted and knowing that he should have been free. And we find out later that he was systematically setting himself up to get away with money, uh, which is hard to do from inside a prison. And I think that's where Stephen King was at his strongest in writing the original story. But you don't have to keep the level of pain constant. You just select him because in the set of events that you're telling, he's the one who's in the most pain. He could have told about the wife, but then a couple of minutes into the story, she's dead. What are you going to tell about her now? Her life in heaven? What? You know, not going to happen. You could have told it from the viewpoint of the murderer. But this isn't about solving the murder. So it's not the story that, that they wanted, wanted to tell. So they wanted to tell the story of the wrongfully convicted guy. Why? Because at the beginning, he's the one who's in the most pain without being dead. And that follows my rule mm -hmm. easily, but he doesn't have to stay at the same pain level all the way through. So that's where she misunderstood. Got it. What you do is you get him actively engaged in trying to solve problems and help other people and help himself. Uh, and then he's facing those difficulties, those challenges, but he doesn't have to be going through a whole lot of personal angst. Oh no, I'm still in prison another day and I didn't do it. You know, he's not going to do that. He's not going to become whiny. He's, he toughs it out. Yeah, and he's able to make friends and and so on. So, good. She's she's misunderstood me into having a dilemma that is not needed. Good. So this may have answered his sec her second part of the question. How do you prevent the pain from becoming too overwhelming, repetitive for the reader? So you put the book down. Example: Third Hunger Games book, and or getting fed up with the protagonist's constant anxiety and angst. And the answer is, if you as a writer are getting fed up, change it. Don't have the story keep doing that. But if you as a writer are still deeply engaged, if you still care about it, keep writing. And your ideal audience, which is people who like the stuff you write, uh, will find it totally satisfactory. But the, thing, the main thing is you're creating a character who is a real character, who responds like a real person. And if you're doing that, if you're giving your character uh, an active part in trying to solve his problems or her problems, you won't end up with a whiny, angsty character. You just won't. You'll, you'd get sick of him, so you'd yeah. stop writing. Good. The next uh, question is from Rain Winchester. How he handles frustration, how he handles a scene popping up that feels weak in the middle of his writing, but no alternatives come no matter how he recombines it, juggles it, tries putting in other ideas. Both frustrations for me. Okay. Uh, what we're really talking about is writer's block. Because... There's no particular reason why any one scene would be weak. What it means is you've lost faith in it. You've lost faith in your story. You don't believe it. You don't care about it anymore. And so you look at that scene you just wrote and you go, this is weak. This is not working. No. The solution is not to work on that scene. Chances are very good that the mistakes that make it so it isn't working there happened many pages ago, maybe on page one. And that's why a professional writer is perfectly willing to set aside uh, you know, I've done 200 pages at a time, set aside, never looked at them again, and rethought the opening. Sometimes the problem is you're using the wrong viewpoint character. That you, you have picked the wrong person to be the, the one whose eyes we see the story through. Or there's a missing character and you don't know it yet. And if you go back and reinvent, 
somebody will pop up and you'll know to embrace somebody that's really interesting. You go, okay, let's see what her relationship is with the hero now. Or let's see how how having, you know, I had the dad be dead. No, let's bring the dad back. Let's have dad come home and not be able to tell anyone where he was. Um, and ha- the strain that puts on the family as the main character is a teenager, skeptical, cynical teenager. How does that change the dynamic? And not only will you not have a weak scene, you won't even have that scene. Because as soon as you've added a character or changed the viewpoint character or made the changes you're going to make as you reinvent the story, by the time you get to that rough point in the story, the, stats, the original scene won't exist, will be impossible. Mm-hmm. You'll have a complete set of characters that are different uh, from what you thought they were. And now you'll still believe in the story. And so when you write a scene, it won't really be any stronger than that previous scene that you'd rejected, but you will believe in and care about the story. That's what's really going on. When you run into something like that, that is your unconscious mind saying, you do not believe in and care about your own story. And the solution is to go back and invent again. Why else might these things happen? What else might result? What else might a character choose to do in response to these things? Remember that no character has just one reaction to anything. Mm-hmm. Everybody has multiple reactions. And no two characters ever have the same reaction. Right. And so go back and see if you've been, been maybe making things too simple for yourself. See what other possibilities are there. Uh, there won't always be big plot changes, you know, big mm-hmm. event changes. They'll often be really small things, but just adding, adding another sibling into the mix. Uh, giving somebody a friend at work or maybe an enemy at work, maybe a nemesis at work, mm-hmm. maybe a lunch thief who steals their sandwich every single day. Uh, and, you know, it might be funny might be just comic relief. But when you get to a place where you realize, okay, this is where I would have put that scene if it were still the same story, um, you'll know better. You'll have the right scene. I think writer's block is a gift to every writer from their unconscious mind. It's their unconscious mind saying, this is not good enough yet. Make it better. And the solution is always reinvention, uh, not fiddling. Rewrites never help a story. Fiddling with the story never helps. Wow. Uh, because you're taking, it's, it's the great line from uh, uh, William Goldman's novel, uh, Boys and Girls Together, about putting on a Broadway show. And after we've watched all these characters struggle so hard to be in the show, to be part of it, to make it work, including the writer whom we love, we have the writer sitting a couple of rows back from some people who are watching a late rehearsal, a dress rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And one of them says to the other, well, what do you think? And the other one answers, wash garbage, it's still garbage. Meaning that the script is bad and nothing they do is going to fix it. The playwright hears that and realizes that it's true. That he was so proud of the script and everybody kept telling him how good it was but it isn't good and it doesn't work and nobody can fix it. it. You know, he doesn't know how and nobody else can because the script is the script. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing 
that we have to recognize when we talk about revising, when anybody suggests that, oh, it's all in the second draft. Fiction has no second draft ever. If you don't get it right in the first draft, revising that draft will do nothing because everything that's wrong that matters is wrong with the story, not with the language. You're fluent in your language. You wrote it fine. Right. Fiddling with the language isn't going to help. You know, if there's a passage that's not clear, yeah, revise it until it's clear. But that's editing. That's not a rewrite, and that's not a second draft. There is no second draft. What there is is if the first draft isn't working or didn't work, they're starting over with a new first draft that has radically changed because of the new things you've invented or the decisions you made about structure. You're starting at a different place. You're promising a different story. You know, all the things that you do, mm-hmm. you're starting it over like a new new novel or like a new short story. And at that point, you're not rewriting anymore, are you? No. It's, it's, a, it's a new first draft. And the first draft is the only living draft. It's the only one where the dialogue you improvise for these characters is fresh and new. And the second time you do a first draft, it's going to be fresh and new again. But if you're trying to hold on to even a paragraph from the first version, you will fail. It will not be better because you're bending what the story wants to be into what you need it to be in order to save that precious paragraph. But, you know, if you're such a naive writer that you think, oh, I'll never write anything as good as this scene again, you're an idiot. Get out of the business. You will always write something that good or better. Mm -hmm. Every time you write a scene that's in that place, it's going to just be fine because you're a good writer. You're fluent in your language. You know what you what the scene needs to be. You know what the character should say. You're going to write a great scene the next time around. And then some poor sucker of a graduate student is going to look in and find that beautiful scene you had in the first draft and go, what a pity, but he was right. The first draft didn't work. And so this new first draft works so much better. Right. And that's the graduate student's job. He's going to get a nice thesis or dissertation out of your mistakes. Um, that's great. That's what they're for. And meanwhile, you will have written a novel that, or a story that came from your unconscious mind in better shape than the first time you tried. Good. All right. And the last um, question we've got here is from Mike Wilgart. I have a super specific question about a recent book of his. Might not fit in your interview, Bill but I'll post it here anyway. In the Mither Mages series, The Lost Gate, The Gate Thief, Gate Father, when a great gate is created, is it made from only a dozen or two gates twisted together or many, many tiny gates that each go a short distance? Near the end of the first book, it's implied that a great gate is from many gates that each go a short distance upwards, but later descriptions of other great gates make it sound like the ends are all in the same place and the connections from one end to the other are what get twisted together. Um, that is exactly what happens in those books. His description is completely accurate. What he's not allowing is the first time they try to understand it, they're simply wrong. Hmm. And so the description of a whole bunch of short gates is what they thought were happening was happening. Um, and they were wrong. And they came to realize, understand what it actually was, so the later descriptions are right. But now, that's what happens often in fiction is that you go, they must have learned better. But what it really is, is I wrote what I was thinking it was in that first book, 
And then it was already published by the time I realized, that doesn't work. Here's what works. And that's what I ended up writing in the later books. I thought I had made it clear that they had come to a new understanding, but maybe I didn't. Maybe that's just a weak moment in my writing where I was not clarifying that they had learned. He's a wonderfully observant uh, reader, and his observation is absolutely correct. That's how it does, how it goes in these three books. And my excuse for it is simply this. They and I learned better in <laughs> volumes two and three. Thank you very much. And thank you for answering all these questions, too. I know that these, uh, that all these fans are going to absolutely love that they were well, those specifically were great questions. by name. But, you know, almost none of those have I ever been asked before. And so to be able to answer new questions, that's fun. That's great. So thank you very much. And um, with that... Uh, thank you very much for listening to the Writers of the Future podcast. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It's free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction and fantasy. And today it's been extremely pleasant to have this opportunity to speak with you, Scott. So thank you. Well, thank you. And we very much look forward to your next works whenever they uh, uh, hit the shelves. When, you mean whenever I actually write them? Cool. Let's do that. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>